Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is an overview of Luke, the beloved physician. Well, I've got good news and bad news for all of you. The good news and the bad news is, bad news is that we just finished the whole Old Testament, which is also the good news. For those of you who've been here this time, i just let you know what kind of accomplishment you've, you've, it's been seven years, seven years in a month. We started August 12, 2012 on the Old Testament, and that was just the highlights. Remember, we called it that because I told you then, and I'm still convinced now, I don't know that we would all live if we made it anything other than the highlights, uh, asking God to lead us, you know, in that process. And so we're graduating now, I'll send you a certificate, from the Old Testament um, to the New. We're going to be moving to the New Testament, in particular the book of Luke. If you would like to turn there with me, the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, is where we're going to be here in a bit. Moving out of the old, into the new, into, well, undoubtedly the most important story that has ever been spoken, ever been written. There are a lot of stories out there, there's a lot of things to read that can change your life, that can change your direction, make you think differently, but there's not a story like the story of Jesus. There's not a story of the story of Jesus has the capacity to affect you, not only in this life, but also in the life to come and forever capacity of making a huge difference in your life and the lives of others through you because of the story of Christ. Someone has called it the saga of salvation. That's exactly what it is, that we're uh, the story of God's plan to save sinners from an eternity in hell by sending his son Jesus to become a man so that he could take our place, so that he could live a perfect life, die in our place, pay and sacrifice himself. We're going to be observing the the Lord's Supper here in a little while at the end of our service where we remember his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. This, this payment that he makes to pay for you and for me, not for himself. So that we can have through faith, we can have a, in him, we can have a way to go to heaven. Not another way except through Jesus. There's not another way. You can't be good enough to go to heaven. You can't achieve it. You can't, you can't get it. But the, the message of, of, of Luke and the message of the writers of the New Testament is that he has achieved it for us. So we're going to start this study, this in-depth study of the life of of Christ and his ministry and all that he's done for us. And Luke is one of only four writers whom God chose to communicate that story to us in the biblical text. And of course, we tell the story and other people wrote about it. And of course, how many stories have been written about Jesus? I mean, over through the years, wow. But only four writers were chosen to be inspired by God. That is infallible inspiration that God takes through a man as he writes and has him write down the very words that God wants him to write. That's what we understand as, as inspiration. These are words that God plans. That he, doesn't promise to, he doesn't promise to guarantee my words or back up my words, nor your words, but he promises to back up his word. And even though he wrote it through men, he certainly did that. Uh, we still have the only four here that were enabled by God to write about his son and communicate that to posterity, which is where we sit today. And as such, Luke is one of the best, the most read authors ever in history. So the, one of the greatest authors in all of history is a guy by the name of Luke. So let me ask you, what do you know about Luke? Do you know him? Do you know his last name even? I bet you do not. No one does, in fact. We could guess, but we, it doesn't tell us, nor does history tell us. He's one of the best-read authors of all time, and yet we don't know him. We tend to know quite a bit about most of the people in the Bible, influencers in the Scriptures, and rightfully so, like a Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Uh, 
And he brings to the world uh, the only Ten Commandments, right, in, in chiseled stone. In fact, the second set, he chisels himself. And so, wow, what an influencer. What, what an incredible man and, and uh, arguably a not, not a more influential person in the entire Old Testament in, in large sense in, in the entire Bible other than Jesus, than Moses. And, of course, we know a lot about Paul. Talk about a guy who's we know his personal details. I mean, we know who he was before Jesus. We know who he was in his conversion experience. We, we know who he is in his ministry and the things that he gave up and the things he suffered. And uh, we even know through history, through tradition, as it's called, uh, how he was uh, killed. I mean, wow, what a, what a man. We know so many details about him. He reveals so much about himself in his stories as he writes these, these letters to these churches in the New Testament about how, what he was and what he used to be and what he is now and what his heart was for people. And we learned so much. I learned so much as a pastor. He was such a pastor's heart as we listen to the things that he says. But that's a Paul or a Moses. But do you know Luke? Let, let me give you an illustration of how influential this unknown man is in your life, in our life, and especially in the biblical text. So, so John writes 20% of the New Testament, right? The book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, book of Revelation, 20% occupies roughly 20% of the New Testament. Paul writes 23% every New Testament. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, you know, this, the letters that he wrote, there's an argument about whether he wrote uh, Hebrews or not. It has some marks of Paul, it has some marks that aren't Paul. I guess it's irrelevant because the Holy Spirit left it unmarked, if you will, totally. We're not really sure how to assign it to. So without that, it leaves us really with Paul only giving us 23% of the New Testament. Guess how much Luke wrote? 27% of the New Testament. That's right. Did you know that? The lion's share of the New Testament is only in two books, the book of, I, the book of Luke and the book of Acts written by a person who you don't even know his last name. Shame on all of you. Neither do I. Shame on all of you. Like I said, we tend to know quite a bit about these major influencers in the Bible. I would submit to you Luke is a major influencer. He writes the most concise, I mean the most uh, prolific, maybe a better, better way to say it, comprehensive, there you go, uh, story or recorder. He's the most comprehensive recorder of the saga of salvation, the story of Jesus, his, his life. We know more about his birth, more about the incidences that happened in his early life from, from Luke than we do any other writer. And, and he, in addition, uh, he's the only recorder of the events of the first 30 years of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. No one else writes this. Only Luke does. And we don't know him. We don't know who he is. He's the only, get this, and, and, and I don't think there's any Hebrews here. We're mostly Gentiles. He's the only person, not Jewish, that God chose to write inspired text through. All the rest of them are Jewish. Old Testament, New Testament, they're all Jew. John's a Jew, Paul's a Jew, Matthew's a Jew, Mark's a Jew, Jonah's a Jew, Moses is a Jew. These are all Jews, right? You get to Luke, like I said, the lion's share of the New Testament. One guy... One Gentile, one of us, us regular people, gets to be the writer. Guess who it is? It's a guy that we don't know. Isn't that interesting? Why don't we know Luke? Well, there's a couple reasons why we don't know Luke. The main reason is because 24 chapters in the book of Luke, 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and never once does he mention his name even one time. In the first chapter here, in the first couple of verses, he calls himself me. 
personal pronoun. In the book of Acts, about halfway through, he starts referring to the whole entourage of people who are serving and ministering alongside Paul. He starts saying, we did this. So you get the impression the person that wrote Acts, at least at some point, becomes a part of the process. So we did this, not just the third person. They did this. Paul did this. We, along with Paul, he starts saying in there. So we understand that he becomes a part of this group. We don't really know how or where or why, but he becomes a faithful part, as we're going to see, of this entourage, this ministry entourage that travels with Paul. So why don't we know him? Because he doesn't tell us about himself. He doesn't sign anything. Look, look, at, look you're in the first chapter of Luke, right? Young people, take a look at your Bible real quick. Because I know you've got it all memorized. That's why you're not looking at it right now, right? First chapter, uh, what does it say at the very first top of the page for you? The big letters. What does it say? Mine says the gospel according to Luke, right? Okay, when Luke wrote this, it didn't say that. Norton does the number one. Notice at the top of the page it starts with the number one, number two, three, the verses, right? Chapter one. None of those were in the original writings. He didn't write it. Do you write letters? Do you write stories and, and number the sentences? No. Now, you may title it, right? Because you're pretty arrogant, just like me. But Luke doesn't title anything. He never gives his name even one time in these two major treatises. Wow, the major influencer of the lion's share of your New Testament. He never signs his name. Would you do all that and not want to just a little credit for it? Not Luke. You're learning a lot about him by just simply the things that, he, that we would do that he did not do. He's a man who was happy to sit behind the massive achievements, not caring anybody knew anything about other than God. I think that's impressive, really, I do. He doesn't write to a church. He doesn't write to a large audience. This is unusual for the New Testament writer. The typical New Testament writer writes to large groups of people. Paul writes to the Romans. What are those? Well, every believer in Rome, that, we don't know how many people that was. He writes to the Corinthian church, that's a bunch of people. He writes to the Thessalonian church, he, uh, 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 Paul uh, writes to uh, de de Colossians, he writes to the Ephesians, right? These, and, and nothing wrong with that. I mean, he was, these were letters that were expected to be read in these churches, and they indeed were, and they continued to be circulated among the churches, and then they became a part of what we call the New Testament canon, the, the grouping of, together of inspired texts that God has given to us through these apostles. Um, uh, John writes uh, to uh, in the seven letters to the seven churches. The Revelation is addressed to seven different churches. Uh, Peter addresses his letters to the scattered Jews, the believing Jews. How many were there? There was a bunch. James does the same thing. When Luke writes, guess how many people he writes to? Solo uno. Only one. Only one guy. Take a look. You're in Revel uh, Revelation. You're in Luke. Chapter 1. Take a look. Take a look at verse 3. It says, And it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you. That's singular, by the way, in the English. It's singular also in the Greek. You, in consecutive order, he names it, most excellent Theophilus. Acts, by the way, is addressed to the same dude for the same reason. So you write this massive, lifelong study, right? that, I mean, I don't think he knew this, that you're going to be known for the rest of eternity for, but you only address it to one person? Wow. Now, 
So, so, so let me say this. Does, does God care about churches? Of course. Does he care about large groups of people, multiple churches? Absolutely. He's addressing all of us collectively every time we read the scriptures. Does God care about the individual? Yes. Would he span heaven and earth to reach that person, to teach that person? See, you have such a lesson here in the, in the ministry of Luke, because the ministry of Luke and his, his uh, uh, scope was just down to a single person. You say, well, what a waste, right, of intelligence and ability and of research. And God would say, that's the way you see it, but that's not the way I see it. I cared about this Theophilus, and so I used a special person like Luke to communicate this, and Luke didn't care, listen to me carefully, about the breadth of his ministry. He cared about the depth of it. God takes care of the breadth, you see. God takes how far it goes. That's, that's God's business. But, but Luke cared about the depth of it, you see. He cared about the accuracy of it. He cared about the correctness of it. And that's what he says here. If you'll take a look there in, in verse 3 and verse 4, he says, I seem fitting for me to be having investigated everything carefully. Would you go to that much trouble for an individual? You should, because God does. And then on in verse 4, so that you might know the exact truth about these things. So he put his whole heart into it. It's almost like we can't get ourselves going unless there's a bunch. Oh, there's going to be a bunch of people. Oh, well, I'll put a lot of work in it, but there's just going to be a few uh, of us. And, and I, the former church I was in, small little church, and sometimes on Sunday nights there would be, I don't know, eight or ten people coming for a Sunday night service, which was fine. I mean, that was about a third of the congregation, honestly. And I had an older gentleman there. He would say, you're not going to give us all of it, are you? <laughs> just a few of us here, right? I will give you an eighth of what I intended to say since there's only an eighth of you here. Uh, you know, God cares about the whole thing. To every one of us, it matters. And Luke is a statement of that to us. His, his ministry is a statement of that to us. And yet, nonetheless, uh, Luke is a shadow as a person to most of us because there are many things that we don't know about him, but I will say there are some things we can know. And we've already learned some of those things about where his heart was and what his concern was. And we're going to be seeing more of those things brought out from the text of what, just simply what he writes, even though he doesn't sign his name to it. And also what very little, and I would say very little, your New Testament otherwise has to say about this man. So let's see what we can learn about him and what we can apply to ourselves through his life. First of all, we can learn as we look at the book of Luke, we can learn that he was a very highly educated man. Now, we don't have any degrees listed here. He did, does say he's a physician down in Colossians, and we're going to see that verse in a minute. But, but it doesn't list anything in particular as far as his writing skills are concerned, but what we can gather as we read his, his, his treatise, if you will, these two, two uh, volumes, Luke and Acts, together they were not labeled that, remember. They were just one continuous thing, label, you know, volume one, volume two, basically to this excellent Theophilus, as he calls him there. We can gather from that, though, he's a very intelligent person. The reason why I say that is because of his writing style. Let's, let's read his prologue, his introduction here, and then we'll talk about it. Verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch, he says, as have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, God working through us, through, through Jesus, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, that's his that's where he gets his information from. Now Luke's a Gentile. He didn't grow up in Palestine. He's getting this information from people who actually saw Jesus, who actually were with him. He interviews these people. We're going to see about uh, probably where he did that in, in a bit. Eyewitnesses and servants of the word who have been handed, they've handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me 
as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. To write it out to you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, he says, so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Now, that's an introduction to his book, a similar, smaller introduction that he does in the book of Acts. This introduction is standard, if you will, because Greek culture, when you wrote someone something, that's the way you did it. It's not very different than the way we do things today. If we were writing someone, we would say, the reason why I'm writing an introductory paragraph, effectively, right? Do you remember how your essays you had to do in school? Introductory paragraph, then you get to the body, and then you get to the conclusion, and then you write the conclusion a certain way. Well, sort of the same rules applied in the Greek culture. is just that they would do things just a little bit differently. They had this prologue, in which they would sort of just kind of give a, a flowery way to say, here you go. That's what he does. Here you go, most excellent Theophilus, except he would say it in a way he says it in a way that's not unlike, it's unlike any other writer in your New Testament. Paul writes with a prologue. John writes with a prologue. They're all, even though Hebrew, they're still in a Greek culture. They kind of, they, they're educated in this Greek culture. They would write in the same way, except when Luke does it, he doesn't do it the way they did it. What I mean by that is not because this, it's not the, the form that he, does, that he uses that is different. It's the language that he uses. This introduction that you just read is the only part of your entire Bible, New Testament in particular, that it's written in classical Greek, which means nothing to you, except I say to you, the only classical Greek writers you're familiar with are Socrates, Plato, Homer, who writes the Odyssey and the Iliad. None of your writers in the New Testament wrote in classical Greek. No one. Only Luke does this. I would suggest to you it betrays a very deep education. He's classically educated as opposed to a Matthew, who's a very good writer, by the way, but he writes in Koine, as opposed to Mark, who writes in Koine as well, but in very rudimentary form, basically, because he gets, his, he gets his message from Peter, and Peter's a fisherman, and Peter's shorts, his long sentences are four words, right? <laughs> Listen, the entire first four verses of the book of Luke in the Greek are only one sentence. And you'd say, well, that's horrible grammar, right? This guy didn't get enough education. No, it is horrible grammar in English, but it is really good grammar if you're classically trained in Greek. It would take expertise to do something, to craft it in such a way that it all makes sense. And the reason why we chop our sentences up, because we can't, we don't have enough going on up here. Either the reader or the writer have enough going on to hold a sentence together that far to we don't lose ourselves. And so we chop it up with, with commas and with, with punctuations and with gaps in, in, in paragraphs because we lose our train of thought. The, the Greek writer who was well-trained didn't have to do that. Luke is one of those people. The only people, as far as we can tell, as far as the way they wrote, the only one in the entire New Testament. Luke was very highly educated. Not only was he a physician, like I said, we'll see, I'll quit talking about it, let's put it on the screen for you. Luke, the beloved physician, the only, by the way, he doesn't refer to himself, nor does the book of Acts refer to him, nor does anyone else refer to him as a doctor, only one spot. And it's Paul that says it, and he just mentions it as an aside. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you your greetings. Where does he get this classical training in Greek? We don't know. Probably there. But you don't have to write classically in order to be a physician. I don't know the last time you noticed physicians don't write very well. You know? Um, these guys were medicine guys. So, so, but we're looking at a guy who's got a pretty good, got a, quite, quite a bit going on between his ears. That's, if you will. That's who Luke is. So all four verses are a single sentence, and they're written in classical Greek. From, from verse 5 on, he stops writing in classical Greek and starts writing in koine, or common Greek. 
which is still an intricate language, but he doesn't write common Greek in a common way. I speak common English, in fact, maybe, maybe too common. Here's the way I would refer to something. Let's say I was going to go buy something, I would tell you this. I would say, we went over there and we bought that thing. Does that make sense to you? Yep, because that's the way I think. Don't mistake me for an intelligent person. Don't mistake me for that kind of person. If Luke had said it, this is the way he says the same kind of thing in his writings. He, instead of saying, we went over there and bought that thing, Luke would say, we proceeded to, to the specific destination in order to procure the necessary item through the proper financial exchange. Now, we both said the same thing, but he said it in a way that demonstrates that if you really want to go to a person that knows something, you need to talk to, not to me. You need to talk to him. This guy is educated. In fact, some, some say, and I agree with, and it's no way to prove it, postulate the possibility that effectively what you have here, as Luke writes to most excellent Theophilus, you have effectively two professors writing to each other. What would that sound like? That would be tough, right? They speak in very high fluting language, and the common people don't speak. I mean, not that we can't read it and understand it. And I would say as a Greek student in the New, in the New Testament, we had to take Greek and Hebrew to get a master's degree in theology, which is what I have. Don't mistake me for Greek or Hebrew. Theolo I mean, like I said, I'm, don't mistake me for a smart person. <laughs> we had to take them. We hated Luke. Hated it. We get to sign a sentence out of Luke because... Holy cow, this guy, have you ever read stuff that's written by a very intelligent person They lose, use all these words? And they're very specific words, and they are a part of English, and they are in the dictionary. They're just not a part of your life. And when you read them, you're just like, couldn't we have said this in an easier way? Well, in the Greek, if you want to hear it in an easier way, read what Peter writes. Peter writes like you expected, like a fisherman. Read what John writes. He also writes like a fisherman. It's not that they didn't have education, they just, you know... They graduated from the ninth grade, you know, kind of thing. Luke has a doctorate degree. Luke has education in, in uh, classical, in the classical language of, of Greek. And so he's a different person. And so when he writes, he writes so specifically and so intricately. When he says things like, I research and I, I have the exact truth, you can trust this guy. You're like a professor you're talking to here. And so when he brings it to you, he's not going to bring it to you until he's done everything. He's turned over every rock. He spent all the time he possibly can. That's who Luke is, this beloved physician. So how do we know, back to maybe an argument I raised earlier, that Luke wrote Luke, since there is no title in the original, since there was no signature in the original? How do we know? Well, here's how we know, and this is some just... Some, so you can win Trivial Pursuit in the next Bible quiz you have. It's important you know how you got your Bible. It's important, like I've told you. There's, there were no titles. There was no subtitles. There was no uh, chapter breaks. There was no numbering. These were all added three, four hundred years later so that people wouldn't forget. How, we could find our way around. We could have a Bible study and say, go to chapter 1, verse 3, or whatever. So for the sake of study, it was broken up the way that it is. It was titled the way that it is. But how do we know that Luke wrote Luke? Here's how we know. We know it from tradition. And we know it very well from tradition. Tradition, in this case, is a very reliable source. What is tradition? Tradition is what we would otherwise call history. Any of you remember history in school? History in school? Do you believe history books? You should. I would say with a grain of salt. Because people write history books. And the winners write history books. And the losers don't get to write 
in many cases. So we don't always get both sides, and it's just a fact of life. Fact of life, we live in a sinful world in which people lie to you, and they will reshape history to make it sound at whatever they want to in order to get more money out of your pocket or to get you more on your knees in front of them. Does that make sense to you? Is that a surprise to anyone? Whoops. Does that shock you? Okay, that's all history is. So, so when we say we get our, the, the fact that Luke writes this from history, to a degree you need to take it with a grain of salt. I would say that to say this. There's not probably any better source of hist factual history than the traditions of the early church. They had no reason to lie. They had no reason to convey anything. These people had no money. They were not televangelists. They weren't getting anything from anybody. They had no motivations to get anything. There was no reason for them to lie about stuff. It, it, people are still capable of lying, don't get me wrong. But, but we've got to be careful with tradition in the same way we've got to be careful with history because sometimes people say stuff that just isn't accurate. And I wouldn't say in any way, Luke, we should classify the labeling of this book with Luke. Would it matter, honestly? So Luke leaves it without signature. Why? Because it's not, it, it doesn't matter who he is, right? It's who he's writing about that matters. Still, nonetheless, tradition is important. It plays a certain part. For, for instance, we know traditionally that Paul was beheaded for his faith. We, everybody thinks they know that, but it's not written in your Bible anywhere, right? So you can't say, I know something. I can say, I know something when I'm standing on what God says, you see. This is verifiable fact. It's inspired scripture. We know God has done this. We know God has inspired this. But what someone has passed down orally and otherwise written in some other form, I can say, well, I, yeah, I know that, but I'm not really totally sure. We know that about Paul. We know from tradition that Peter was crucified upside down. We know from tradition, and there's not reason to argue it. We know from tradition that, that John, uh, Jesus on the cross gives John uh, a responsibility for his mother. Behold thy son, mother, behold thy son, and, and son, behold thy mother, right? He, he, on the cross, he gives John basically responsibility for his mother, taking care of his mom while hanging on the cross. Wow, right? According to tradition... Mary sticks with him. You would expect that. He moves to Ephesus and later in life takes Mary with him. She dies in Ephesus. She's buried in Ephesus. How do we know that? Not in the Bible, but according to good tradition, it's good history. It really is. It's reliable. I don't see any reason to doubt it. Same is true with the, with the, the authorship of this book. No, 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 no title, no, no signature at the back, and yet nonetheless, we can, we can trust it because of where it comes from. I, I say that to say this. Tradition also can be distrusted on a certain level. For instance, when you go with us to Israel, you're going to go, right? We'll, we'll take you, some, sometimes we go, sometimes we don't. We go to the place called the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross, the, the way of suffering, where traditionally, I put that in quotes, Jesus walked from the Praetorium where he was convicted under Pontius Pilate to the Golgotha. We know basically where the Praetorium was. We know basically where Golgotha is. And we don't really know the route that he takes, but traditionally there is a route that you take, and there's the stations of the cross if you're Catholic along the way. And part of the, one of those stations is a traditional place. It's a rock where supposedly Jesus fell. We know that he did, where he fell. And, and, and Simon of Cyrene was required to take his cross and carry it the rest of the way because Jesus was so weakened because they'd beaten him so bad, right? It's a part of the Bible. We know that that happened. We just, it doesn't name the spot. Well, Tradition has determined where that spot is. The problem with it is, is that they determined that spot in the 1300s, like 1,300 years after the fact. So I'm thinking after 1,300 years, there could be a... There's other rocks, let's just say that, okay? 
Maybe it wasn't this rock. Maybe it was some other rock. And in fact, if you really get back to it, you find out that the Romans in AD 70 so destroyed the city that the, the original Via Della Rosa actually is almost 100 feet below the area where the current one is. So not only can we be certain that that's not the rock where Jesus fell, we can be certain it's not even the Via Della Rosa. Now, it's more or less the direction, right? And it's some, it means something to people, and it's a place where it reminds them of what Christ did. And so in that sense, I don't want to take that away from you, but at the same time, I want to say be careful of tradition, because tradition can be like that. Be careful of it. How do we know when tradition is more reliable? When the sources come from earlier on. For instance, after 1,300 years, I'm thinking that maybe they could get it wrong. In the case of the authorship of this book, early church fathers, within 30 years of him writing this book, were already saying it was Luke that wrote it, even when there was no signature. All of them saying this. All the early pastors and the early bishops and deacons and leaders were all saying it was Dr. Luke who wrote Acts, who wrote the book of Luke, even though Luke never signs them, never puts a title on them. So that's it's about as reliable as history can possibly get when you get that close to the original event, and they're all saying the same thing. So, wow, right? So now you know better to win at Trivial Pursuit. What isn't trivial, though, I would suggest to you, what isn't trivial and what I really want to talk about and conclude with today is what kind of person Luke was. Here's some things we can gather from what the Bible does say about him, from what he says, about him, what he says reveals about himself in his unsigned documents here. We know that he was a man of ministry. We know that from Philemon 23 and 24, Paul, concluding the letter, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, there it is, Luke, my fellow what? Workers. So he gives up a lucrative career, which, so he's educated in the classics. Could have made a lot of money. He's a physician. He's been to school. Mom and dad had put him through a bunch of stuff. He gives up all of that to serve a poverty-stricken ministry, going from place to place, being threatened with your life, nearly killed. He, he's on the trip where Paul, where the boat sinks. Now, he's not in some kind of hovercraft watching it go under. He's on the boat, all right? He's swimming to shore along with Paul and everybody else. He's, he's in the prison system. He's, in the, he's going through the things. He's under the torture. He's under the persecution that they experience. He never refers to himself, he just, other than to say, we. We did this, and we did that, and here's Paul saying he's a part of my entourage, this fellow minister. He's a minister. Are you a minister? Are you a minister? So here, here's a guy with, I guess you could say, other degrees, and yet what does he find himself? Doing what matters. There's nothing wrong with being a doctor, nothing wrong with being a writer, nothing wrong with being an educated person, nothing wrong with having another job. But, but listen, there is something wrong if that's all you'll ever do. You're missing it. Because you're going to step out of this life where none of that's going to matter, but what you've done for Christ will matter. It will. I'm not saying you need to quit your job, as Luke did, and go and travel with what everybody thought was a crazy guy, Paul. But I am saying where you find yourself, I would strongly suggest you find yourself in ministry. I would strongly suggest you find yourself giving back and saying, what does God have for me in my life? How can I help? How can I turn back the, the, the blessings and the grace that's been handed to me through faithful people who have ministered to me in my life? How can I turn this back and, 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 do, and do what God's called me to do? I would strongly suggest that you do that. He was a man of ministry. He was a man of humility. Fabulous writings, right? He gets no signature. Would you do that? 
all this research, and I don't even sign my name. You know, I have a doctor degree, right? You know, my name is on the front of that dissertation. My name is on the back. My name, along with all my accolades, you know, all my letters that come after my name, including H2SO4, is right there on the back of that. I don't have any chemistry. I usually get a laugh out of that. I apologize. H2SO4 is sulfuric acid, by the way. It's a let it's, it can be a letter after your name also. I got my name all over that thing. Why? Because I did it, by golly. I did it, and I'm not even impressed with my knowledge. I'm impressed with the fact that I typed all that. That's the most important thing. I cannot type. So Luke does more than that, and this is a part of Inspired Text, and never signs this name. Are you a person of humility? Our real goal in life is to prove nothing in life. It ought to be. Not so people know who we are, know what we do, and know what we're about. Really, it, it doesn't, isn't it true that it, what all should matter is what God thinks of us? See, Luke cared nothing about the breadth of his ministry. He didn't write to anybody but a single person. Didn't care that anyone else knew. As far as I know, never knew that anyone else knew. Just wrote faithfully. He studied hard, and, and he wrote to that single person, which brings us to the next thing. He deeply cared about the individual. Does it matter to you, the individual? Sometimes we only want to get on the bandwagon that has a lot of stuff going for it. Oh, we get all excited because 25 people came to know the Lord. And I'm not saying that's not an exciting thing. We baptized 80. We had a great ministry. We saw so many. We have such great ministries here. We see so many come in through our food pantry and through, through spring break and through our children's and youth ministries. And that's all awesome. And numbers, believe me, mean everything to God. But so does the number one mean something to God. When a single sinner, right, repents, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels in heaven. When one sinner repents, we get all caught up in the big numbers, and I'm not saying they're not important. I'm saying a big number also is this one. Luke was committed to the, that big number because he does a careful interviews with eyewitnesses, and most likely, as Paul is in prison in Palestine, he went through all that with Paul. He is with him in his different prison things. He was probably a prisoner himself. It doesn't tell us one way or the other. But while Paul is in Palestine, gives Luke the opportunity, he's got nothing to do except wait for Paul to get out of prison. What does he do with him in Palestine? Visits all the apostles. Interviews Mary, the mother of Jesus. Sees all these. Does it as a trained classical writer would do. Does it as a researcher would do. Does it as a trained physician would do. And so, wow, what does he come up with? Well, massive books. That's why he writes 27% of your New Testament. He, he, he does all this, and yet he puts it all together with excellent penmanship and compiles all that for a single person. Wow. Talk about the importance of an individual. He demonstrates that. Does an individual bother? Does that bother you? One individual, no big deal. It's when a bunch of people are getting lost that matters. No. No. One matters to God. And then he was a man of loyalty. Paul writes his second letter to Timothy. And he writes it effectively as his swan song. He tells us in there, tells Timothy in there that this is it. He knows that it's the end for him. He's been in prison numerous times. He's been threatened with death multiple times. But now when the man of God that he is and was says it's time, it's time. This is, I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Now stands in front of me the crown of righteousness. All those who hope for his appearing, he says, he's, he's going to bring for that. And then he goes on in the, in the, in the remainder to, to tell Timothy some things. And among those things, he tells his condition. Who, who's still with him? We read earlier about all these guys that were part of the entourage, this ministry team that went along with Paul. And Paul certainly was a leader of that. But, 
Something happens to the ministry team, notice. Demas, that was one of the listed ones we saw earlier. Having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Do you forgive him, by the way? I do. I don't know if you've ever failed at anything, but I have. There's, I know there's nothing in your life you're ashamed of, right? Can we forgive him? I, don't, I expect to see Demas there. I, it's, it's, it's horrible that, that, I mean, I have some things I'm ashamed of, but they weren't lit, written in eternal text, you know? It's kind of like, you know, don't do wrong at certain times because it's going to show up in the text. Don't get your picture taken for crying out loud. That's more than a picture right there. But I forgive him. And then it says Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Titus had a whole letter written to him. These guys have either deserted Paul or Paul, I would suggest to you, has sent most of them away. And he says, only Luke is with me. Wow. What a statement of loyalty. I, I, what's, what's going on here, and Paul is executed not long after this by beheading, like I said, according to tradition. What's happening here is Nero, who's the new emperor, has decided that he's going to blame all the problems of the Roman Empire upon Christians. And so he sets half of Rome on fire, and he blames the Christians, and so they start executing them wholesale. And so Paul, some of them got scared, I would suggest to you, Demas is among those. Others, Paul says, listen boys, you don't have to get out of town. This is it for me. I've served, I've done, I've, I've, I've lived. I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done. You boys have got a life ahead of you. Go back to your wives. Go back to the ministry. The ministry has to continue. Don't stay here with me. I'd, I'd rather die by myself. This is what he's preaching to all the boys that are running with him, including Luke. But where's Luke? So I'm not leaving you? They're killing you. They're killing me. We don't know what happened to Luke. I said Luke is sort of a shadow. But we do know about him. We know about him, the testimony about him. He's faithful, you see. He's faithful. Remember what I said earlier to these kids? I've noticed that when you stop pedaling a bicycle, stuff stops running. It's not, not like the electric bike where you just flip a switch and things keep going. No, it's not like that. You've got to keep pushing, don't you? You talk about a guy who kept pushing, you're looking at him. His name was Luke. He was a guy that kept going, didn't care what anybody thought. He was behind the scenes, loved it back there. Loved to do his research, loved the details, loved the classics, loved, loved stuff like that, and didn't care that anybody knew who he was, but, but he cared about the things that he committed to, and he stuck with it, you see. See, that's what you and I have got to do. Do you care about being faithful? Listen, the thing doesn't coast very long. It just doesn't. You've got to keep pedaling. You've got to keep doing You're going to wake up in the morning and say, you know, I don't really like this Bible study and prayer. I'm going to see where it's going. Do it anyway. Sunday comes around, you've got better things to do. Do it anyway. Go to church. Be faithful. Be involved. Be committed. Let the single person matter. And again, like I said, you worry about the depth of who you are, and God will worry about the breadth of who you are. True for Luke, right? True for you, true for me. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for Luke. I thank you for a great man. Wow. We just know so little about him. And the Bible's full of great men, great women, some we know so much about, because that's what you wanted us to do, and others, because there's a lesson to learn in us knowing them, and there's others like Luke who we learn a lesson in not knowing them. Because what really matters is not that we know them, or that they know us, but that you know them, and that you know us. God, I pray that we would be performing for a single set of eyes, and that's yours. We would live day to day for that single set of eyes, that single opinion 
that single desire, that single will. And we would allow you to concern yourself with who knows or doesn't know who we are. And we would concern ourselves with really who we are, who our, where our heart is, God. Where, where our life is truly going, not what the world thinks, not what anybody knows about us, but what you know about us. Lord, I pray for that realness, that singleness of mind, that loyalty, that care about the individual, that humility that is so interested, mostly interested, only in what you think. Thank you, God, for the, the testimony this man, Luke, was, is still to us. We pray, God, your blessings over our study is you put your hand on us as we delve into the saga of salvation, the story of your son. We need to know more about him, God. We don't know enough. We need to be surrendered more to him. We're not surrendered enough. We ask your blessings in such a way over us and over this study, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.